Let us pray together just now. Father God, we've just sung that your word is mighty, releasing captives. When you speak to us, and when we listen and hear, Lord, you change our lives. You bring us into life and freedom and wholeness the like of which we could never experience outside of you. Lord, come and speak your word today so that we might hear it and we too might be set free. Amen. As a lot of you know, maybe I cycle quite a lot in my everyday uh, routine. I use my bike to go back and forward uh, from the house to the church here uh, to go on parish visits and up to hospitals and so on. Well, just at the moment, my bike needs, uh, needs repaired uh, a little bit. Um, the back wheel's got a buckle uh, and it needs straightened or, or made true, uh, I think is the, the technical word. And the idea of truing your wheel is to get a perfect balance of the tension of the spokes on one side of the wheel with the spokes on the other. And if they're in perfect tension, they hold the wheel in a perfect circle. I thought I'd tell you quickly how to do that this morning, just in case you have a buckle and you want to fix it. So uh, the first thing you have to do is fix the wheel. Um, There's fancy things that you can buy for that called a wheel jig. I don't have one. But I think you can probably approximate that just by turning your bike upside down and having the wheel uh, run in its own uh, forks. The second thing you need then is a a spoke key. Uh, So it's a thing that you use to tighten or to loosen uh, spokes. And as I say, it's all about tightening on one side, loosening on the other till they're in, in perfect tension. If anyone's ever tried this, they will tell you it's got quite a high failure rate. You start with a small buckle and end up with a wheel that looks like spaghetti. Um, That's why I haven't been in a hurry to do it yet. And when you finally get the tension right, then the wheel is perfectly round again. And it runs straight in the center of the frame of the bike without moving from side to side. Then the bike is, is working as it was designed to work. In 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, Paul's been truing the wheel uh, for the Corinthian church. He's been trying to ensure that the believers have the right appreciation of the freedom that they have in Christ on the one hand, but also their responsibility to, to live for his glory on the other. He's trying to ensure that they hold these two truths in tension and that the wheel is true and can run as God has designed it to. It all began back in chapter 8 when Paul began to respond to the the question of the believers in Corinth whether they're free to eat idols or food, sorry, sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, of course you are. We know that an idol is nothing in all the world, he said, and that there's no God but one. You're free to eat whatever you want, but 
you've got to think about how you exercise that freedom to ensure that you're always doing everything to enhance God's reputation in the city of Corinth. Remember for a second with me what we learned right at the start of of the letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul calls the believers in Corinth, uh, and he calls them this. He says those who were sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to be holy. Corinth, you'll remember, we said, was a massively immoral city. And the first thing that Paul says to the Christians in the city is that you're called to be different. You're called to be holy. You're called to be an entirely new kind of people in that city. You're to reflect God's character. You're to show Corinth what the living God is like. As we've read 1 Corinthians, we've seen that that wasn't really the strength of the Corinthian church. Too many times, instead of uh, showing the way to Corinth, the church was exactly like the people in Corinth. So here in chapter 10, Paul is emphasizing the need for a believer who, who has their freedom in Christ to live out their freedom in a way that honors God to hold these two things in tension so that the wheel can be true. So let's, let's see what actually happens here in chapter 10. In chapter 8, Paul said that there's no theological reason why they couldn't eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol. But in chapter 10, he warns them quite strongly against actually doing it. He pleads with them to flee idolatry because he's concerned for these young Christians that they're using their freedom to put themselves into dangerous positions, back into places where they're in danger of being lured into idolatry. The feeling you get in the opening verses of chapter 10 is that they've grown complacent, these Christians in Corinth. They were confident that all was well between them and God. They they seem to base their confidence on, on some of the the tangible aspects of church life, the sacraments, if you like. They thought that because they'd been baptized, because they took communion, that their salvation was secure no matter how they behaved. Paul knew different. He knew that they were in grave danger. To eat food that's been sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple is to live a way of life that threatens to suck you back in to that idolatry and away from Christ. So he tries to undermine their complacency and their false confidence, and he begins by warning them from history. What he does is he draws a parallel between how they're living in Corinth there and then with God's people Israel, whom Moses had led out of Egypt. The Israelites had experienced a baptism of sorts, Paul says, when they passed through the waters of the Red Sea to escape Pharaoh's army, they too had had their equivalent of the Lord's Supper when God fed them with manna from heaven and the water that flowed miraculously from the rock. So Paul calls this spiritual food and spiritual drink. But Paul says, despite having those blessings, God wasn't pleased with them. Don't miss the lessons of history, Paul says. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil 
as they did. It's quite interesting, but Paul points back at the sins of Israel in the desert only to discover that each one of those has a parallel in contemporary Corinth. Verse 7, the people in the desert, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. That's been a a recurring theme uh, throughout Paul's discussion of the church in Corinth. In verse 8, we're reminded of the time recorded in Numbers 25, when the men of Israel had sex with Moabite women and then were lured into idol sacrifice. Exactly the kind of thing that's been going on again in the church in Corinth. Members of the church going to pagan temple prostitutes. And then in verses 9 to 10, Paul refers to a time when God's people grumbled against Moses and against God himself. And if you're a member back to the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, there's a lot of grumbling there against Paul and his God-given authority. So it turns out there are a lot of parallels between Corinth today and Israel a a millennia and a half ago. Paul concludes his history lesson, verse 11. He says, these things happened to them, to the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful then that you don't fall. There are no grounds for complacency, Paul says. You're doing exactly the same stuff that God's people Israel did in the desert And they knew his judgment. Unless you repent, unless you turn around, recommit yourselves to living as God's people, then you're in danger of experiencing God's judgment too. We're talking here about the balance of freedom and morality living under God. It seems to me that it's great, absolutely brilliant, that so many people in Christian churches in Northern Ireland have have discovered a much greater freedom in Christ in recent times. But let's be careful. Lest we fall. Let's keep an eye on how we use the internet. how we use alcohol. Used to be Christians didn't use alcohol. I think some use it too much. Let's be careful of our relationship with wealth. And where we struggle, as all of us do, in different ways. Let's remember God's grace. Look at verse 13. Paul promises that God is faithful, that he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we are tempted, he will provide a way out so that we can stand up under it. 
If we're looking for a way out, He provides it. I don't think He provides it if we're not looking for a way out. But for those who want to live for His glory, He will, by His Spirit, help us. In verses 14 to 22, Paul applies this warning from history even more directly to the believers in Corinth. And he stresses that they shouldn't have anything to do with pagan rituals. And you see his basic point spelled out in verse 20. He says, The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants in demons. There's something we need to get our heads around here. Because in chapter 8 he'd said, Idols are no big deal. They don't have any, any power in themselves because they don't really exist. But, Paul now says, there's something behind that kind of a world of, of superficial evil. There, there is a demonic reality in the world. And going to a pagan temple and getting involved in idol sacrifice isn't spiritually neutral. It's flinging wide the doors of your life to real evil. And he uses a very powerful way to to get this argument across. He talks about participation. He asks in verse 16, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the body of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a participation in in the body of Christ? He's reminding the believers in Corinth that when you take the bread and when you drink the cup, you're remembering, you're doing more than just remembering Christ's death on the cross. We're participating somehow with Jesus Christ. The old Church of England prayer book, it described communion as feeding on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. So Paul says, whenever you take the bread and the wine, you participate with Christ. And what he does then in verses 18 to 22 is he draws our attention to a a related but shocking reality. And that is that while Christian worship is participation with Christ, so pagan worship is participation with demons. Verse 20 in a very sobering manner. He uses the same word, participation, and he warns the people, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. Friends, be clear about what's going on here. Paul isn't approaching pagan idolaters and asking them to stop engaging with idols. That's not what he's doing. He's challenging Christians and warning them against the idea that they can have a foot in both camps. He says in verse 21, you cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Friends, this is a common phenomenon 
among supposedly mature Christians. We say to ourselves, I know what I believe. I know I'm saved. I can dabble in a few pleasures from time to time. It won't do me any harm. I can have the best of both worlds. And so we become Christian idolaters. We participate in Christ, and at the same time we give our hearts to idols, and we open our lives to the demonic influences that underpin them. Vaughn Roberts gives an illustration of of what's going on here at this point in Paul's argument. He says, A young friend of mine once wrote to me to tell me why he had decided to stop being a Christian. He had begun to go out with a girl who did not share his faith, and he had sensed the need to choose between her and Christ. He concluded, I cannot serve two gods. My girlfriend is my God. What a sad story. But we must say this, and at least commend the honesty and the clarity of this young man's vision. Jesus told us that we can't serve two masters, but we, we want to be the ones who prove him wrong. We can do it, Jesus. We know how to, we've found a way to follow you but to be really, really into other things. You're wrong, Jesus. It is possible to follow two masters, and we have discovered it. And we reveal ourselves with the the questions we ask. Do you remember the the old uh, chestnut in the ask any question time in the, the youth group? Is it okay for Christians to go out with non-Christians? We reveal ourselves. We we want to be Christ, but we want the other thing also. And we still ask the same questions as grown-ups. Is it okay for me to be a Christian and yet hold on to my wealth? We think we'll only be happy if we can serve God and at the same time serve another master. Keep our idols. Paul won't have any of it. He's crystal clear on this matter. Verse 14, Therefore, my friends, flee from idols. In the remaining verses of our passage, verses 23 through to 11, verse 1. Paul concludes this whole, this whole three chapters discussion of food sacrificed to idols, and he uses one of the Corinthian catchphrases that we had noticed earlier in the letter. The Corinthians who discovered a wonderful freedom in the Christian faith, they had realized that everything is permissible. You might remember uh, we noticed uh, that slogan before. And once more, Paul agrees with him. That's right. Everything is permissible. He says in verse 25 that they may eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and everything in it. Everything is permissible, Paul says, but not everything's beneficial. 
Paul's dealt with stuff in these three chapters that isn't really our stuff. Food sacrifice to idols isn't the first and most common issue that I deal with as a pastor in the church here. But the, the principle holds true, and I believe is a very important one for us to grasp. Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 gives us a pattern that we can follow as we think about lots of different areas of our lives, areas where the Bible gives no clear command, where we're weighing up our freedom with our responsibility to live for God's glory. Let let me condense it into what we'll call the G test, three G's to consider when you're making a decision. This can be applied to a, a small decision or, you know, so whether to to visit a particular website or to go to this or that club, but also to larger decisions about how I spend my time or my money or where I should live or even whom I should marry. First question on the G test. I think Graham has slides for us here. What will the effect be on my spiritual growth? So you're sitting at home watching TV and a movie or a program comes on. Is this going to be good for me? Am I going to come out the other end of watching this stronger and built up in Christ? The second question, will this be good for others? If I watch this film, could I be offending someone, a non-Christian who's near me? Might they be surprised to see someone who, who openly claims to be a Christian watching something like this? then I don't want to watch it. Might watching this film be bad for another Christian, a friend who's nearby? Might it somehow undermine their efforts to live for God if they saw me watching it? And the third question is all about glory. Can I do this for the glory of God? And this is the bottom line. I suppose I'd just boil this down to how would you feel watching this movie with Jesus sitting beside you? And that's massively twee, but it's the reality because God is with us. It's only in those moments when we choose to forget that 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 we, we live outside of reality. God's present to us. Am I living for God's glory when I do this thing? In verse 31, Paul says, and it's a a wonderful verse to take away from chapter 10. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is there a way of living where we, we live every moment of every day and make every decision to see God's reputation enhanced? The back wheel of my bike is buckled. It's not running true. And I'll need to get that sorted out soon. But my life's buckled too. Like the believers in Corinth, I'm struggling to get the the balance between the freedom I have in Christ and 
and living well for God's glory. I need straightened out. I need to be made true so that I can live more fully as God called me to. Maybe you do as well. Maybe we all do. Let's pray. Father God, it's the very nature of sin to take the good things that you give us and to distort and twist them. Lord, your great gift to us in Jesus is our freedom. You set us free from the power of sin, from condemnation, even from death itself, and you hand us our freedom. And yet, Lord, before long, we take our freedom and we twist it and, and we use it to wander far from you. Lord, we pray that today as we've heard your word and heard your voice in it, that we would, we would long to be trued by you, to be made true once more. Lord, help us to see the fullness of your, the freedom you offer us in Jesus. And help us also, Lord, to long for a, a fullness of, of holiness and integrity in our lives. Lord, let our lives ring true so that the people around us would, would see that there's something different in us. Nothing less than the growing presence of the living God. Lord, come to us and make us true, we pray. Amen.